Hello, everyone. My name is Katherine Barron. I'm a longtime education reporter and host of The Score, a podcast about academic integrity and cheating. We explore the landscape of cheating in school and delve into the key issues at play in this multifaceted issue challenging academia today. In each episode, we speak with faculty, scholars, or students and ask them to provide insights into what's happening in college and university classrooms and why. How big a problem is it? Who cheats? As well as what policies, regulations, prevention efforts, and changes in teaching and assessment show promise in curbing cheating. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at podcastthescore, that's one word, or stop by our website to download show notes and see our lineup of guests and release dates. Again, that's podcastthescore.com. This episode features Jennifer Wright with the University of Central Florida, where she facilitates workshops and seminars on ethical decision-making and is Program Manager of Student Conduct and Academic Integrity in the Office of Student Rights and Responsibilities. She's been working on academic integrity issues and initiatives at UCF for nearly 12 years, including the simple but effective Take the Zero campaign. Jennifer Wright, welcome to The Score. Jennifer, I want to start with an article that you wrote for the Teaching Professor newsletter. It's titled, Take the Zero, Helping College Students Have a Healthier Way of Thinking About Grades. It presents an innovative way to help students make better choices about academic integrity. Before we get into the specifics of the campaign, though, I want to ask you about your first sentence in the article. You wrote, for the last seven years, I have had the absolute honor of working with college students who have committed academic misconduct. And that kind of caught me off guard. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful at all, but it was just curious. I'm I'm curious, what makes it an honor for you? It's an honor because my job allows me to hear students at their most vulnerable time in their life, where they are trying to come to grips with a choice that they made that they know was not the coolest thing they could have done. So to have the honor of hearing students' stories, of being hopefully a catalyst to them being able to move forward from this incident with even greater integrity greater awareness of decisions that they're going to make. That is why it's an absolute honor. I have heard many, many unique stories associated with choices that have been made. Some of them have been very tragic. Some of them have been overwhelming. Tell us, what is the Take the Zero campaign and and where did you get the idea for it? Also, how does it address the question of what makes students cheat? I thought of it from a student. I was having a coaching session with a student who had committed academic misconduct. And every student who is found in violation of academic misconduct is automatically sanctioned to do a coaching session with me. And during those coaching sessions is where I tried to figure out with the student, why did this happen? What was a reason behind it? How are you doing since it all occurred? Etc. And I was talking with one student and I said to them, Well, what have you reflected upon this? What has been your big aha moment from this? And they said, If I had just 
taken the zero, I wouldn't be talking with you. And I went, I can do something with that. That, that just had a spark in me. I wrote it down immediately in my notebook. And from there I started to play with it and I brought it to my colleagues and tested it out with some of our great student assistants and people like that. And they were like, yes, I think you have something there. So that's where it kind of came from. It came from a student's mouth themselves. What it's addressing is when students feel that there is no other option to take, there actually is another option to take, as opposed to going ahead and saying, this is the only way I can salvage this grade. It's the only way I can pass this exam is I'm going to need to cut a corner. I want them to know there is actually an option. It's to do nothing and it's to take the zero. So that's how it addresses the part of academic misconduct. That's very hard for a lot of students. I'm not sure I would have been making that decision in that situation. It's not easy. How do you convince students that this is the right way to go? It takes a while for the concept to sink in. I actually tell you really quick, I was working with a group of students just the other day and I was asking them how their semester was going and all of it. And they're like, oh, I'm really stressed out because we have about five weeks till finals. So a lot of end of the semester things are being done. And I go, okay. I said, well, you know, we're doing the best that we can. You know, I wish you all the best and good luck with everything. And then I just had this overwhelming feeling to say the sentence. And I said to them, I go, you do know that you can miss a question on an exam. And I just started seeing faces go, uh, no, not really. Not really. And I was like, and I kept, I must have repeated it to them at least four times in a row for it to kind of sink in. I have a workshop also that I do that is called um, B's and C's get degrees. And again, it's not easy for students of today to go ahead and get a C, take a zero. It's interesting how they have the the ways of looking at that zero on a 10-point quiz and manifesting it to, I can't be a doctor. I can't become a lawyer. My parents won't be proud of me. I'm going to let my siblings down. Zero out of 10 will move a student to go, it's all, it's all over. So I'm trying to get that concept across to them that it is okay. They put a lot of pressure on themselves. Tremendous. What what do you say when a student is referred to your office? And how do you, do do they actually admit to cheating? I would say a good 95% of them admit to it. With academic misconduct, you need to have facts and evidence to back it up. The only time that I ever feel that there's sometimes a gray area would be sometimes with plagiarism or a writing assignment. But if a student has a cheat sheet underneath a final exam, the cheat sheet's there. You know, if they have written on their hand, the writing's on their hand. If they have their phone out, there we go. We can see what's on the phone. And especially now with all the online classes with Honor Lock and Proctor Hub and all of this can be discovered. So 95% of them will admit to it because they, they know it occurred. They were there when it happened. Are they upset that they did mm-hmm. it or are they upset that they got caught? There's a lot of shame that's associated with this. They are very upset with themselves. 
they can't believe they have done what they chose to do. There's a couple of students every now and then that I will have that kind of thought process, depending on the sentences they say, where I'm kind of going, are you just sorry you got caught like this? You know, but I can tell you because there is not a week that goes by that I don't meet with a student and I don't have somebody who is literally crying about what has happened. And that release, they do a lot with me. So yeah, they do admit to it. They get it that there's no other way because they were there when it happened. So they can't blame it on anybody else. Then how do you talk to them? How do you start off if you have someone in, in tears in your office? Hopefully the tears, they let me get through a little bit of a hello, how are you before they start crying, but some of them don't. I started off by every session by just asking them, how are you doing living in this incredible world that we're in today? And that will kind of give me, again, some ideas and guides of where this conversation could go, especially considering, you know, depending on points of view and whatever, we're still in this incredible pandemic. We have a lot of world events happening, things that are happening across our own country. And I want to kind of see how are they handling just that, because that is a lot um, for them, just to kind of see where they're going. And then from there, I usually ask, did you know at the time what you were doing wasn't the coolest thing you could have done? That usually starts the conversation or tears, depending on which way they want to go. And I want them to, because I know how much of a release it is, I want them to be able to hear their own voice and say, yes. Because that's powerful to own a decision that you made when you can say it with your own voice. Um, So I start with that. And then when they say yes, I'll go, okay, now let's talk about why did it happen? You knew at the time what you were doing wasn't the coolest, but you did it anyways. So let's analyze that moment in time and why did that occur? And then the conversation just goes from there. I mean, it will go in all sorts of directions. I do also ask them if they have told anybody about this, a parent, a sibling, a friend, roommate, anybody. Some of them do. Some of them don't tell anybody. So we will also have that conversation as well. Hopefully by the end of our session, they are owning it. They are starting to be able to put it in perspective. And then they leave even stronger in the values that they hold to be their truth regarding integrity, trust, honesty those kind of things. So it does seem like you want to get to that that critical moment mm-hmm. where they say I can cheat yep. or not cheat. Yep. And and what makes them cheat? And then what makes them not cheat? Yeah. I mean, well, that may I don't know if you've spoken <laughs> with those students, but <laughs> well, I it, it's interesting. I what I have found for the students who when I say to them, what I'll say, what wasn't in front of you or what was the message that was playing in your head at the time that you chose to go ahead and do this? And a lot of times they will say what I mentioned earlier about, I have to pass this. I must get an A. When I hear the haves and must sentences, then I know that's where some of the work is going to go as well. I have to pass this course. I must be perfect on this. I've never failed. I want to go to medical school and all of this stuff. And they're just like, at that moment in time, they were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to put into jeopardy 
everything that they do know to be right because that message was so incredibly powerful for there. And I've been doing a lot of reading in books as such about thinking and human behavior and all that. And there is a part of our brain that will overtake our logic. And if that message is strong enough, our actions will happen accordingly there. So that's some of the things that, that they tell to me. all of us. <laughs> it does. It does. It's not, yeah. it's not unique. Take us through the process of what happens to a student who's suspected of cheating. Is there a standard process that all UCF faculty have to follow? Yes and no. I will say every college and university across the U.S. and the world has their own policies and procedures and when how they do things. With our process, what we are looking at in our office is, has that student's behavior risen to a potential violation of academic misconduct as we have it defined in our golden rule? So we do not have anything to do with grades. We don't have anything to do with any kind of decisions that a program or a degree program may put into place um, for the student who has done what they have done. So usually this professor will go ahead and handle it um, in regards to what is going to be the grade violation, what's going to be the course consequence. Then they'll say, well, I want to how do I say this, uphold my end of an obligation in acting in integrity. And I need to submit this to Office of Student Conduct and Academic Integrity in order for us to determine if a violation has occurred. And then we take it from there. And then do you hand it back to the professor when you're we finished? We do. After the outcome has been resolved, after the case has been resolved, uh, we do send a letter to the reporter, to the professor, indicating what the outcome was. Jennifer, what are the sanctions for students who are found to have cheated? And do they vary based on the type of cheating? You know, are, mm-hmm. do some hold more weight than others? And, and are the sanctions kind of across the mm-hmm. board, or do professors have a lot of discretion on that? Well, again, with our process, the professor's discretion is with the grade. That's where it's, it is. So again, we don't have anything to do with grades. So if the professor feels, based on their policy that they have in their syllabus, that the act that they witnessed, that the student deserves an F in the course, they can give them an F in the course. If they want to just take points off, They can do that, give them a zero, whatever it is. That actually has no bearing on our process because professors for a final grade are looking at student behavior over a 14-week period, over a semester. We're looking at one act that has occurred on a day. So we're determining the egregiousness of that act. And with that, we look at what was the intent What was the impact that it had? How many were involved? Were other students brought into this? Did other students benefit from a student committing academic misconduct? And a lot with the Course Hero and um, with Quizlet, with Chegg and all of that, other students end up participating as well in that. So we look at a lot of things with it. Um, to determine what the outcome will be for in violation. We have six 
levels of violations. And they range from a warning to probation to deferred suspension, suspension, dismissal, and expulsion. So those can only come from your office? A professor couldn't expel a student? No, no, professors cannot. So you you talked about intent. I I mean, I kind of think of it as what premeditated cheating versus spur of the moment cheating. I look at it and say, was there enough of an opportunity or a moment where the student could have stopped what they were doing? So, for example, if there was a student who paid another person to do their work for them, there's contacting somebody, getting it set up changing usernames and IDs, giving them access, having a lot of conversations, that could have stopped at any moment. Somebody, that person could have said, wait a minute here, what am I doing? And could have stopped. Continued it, that's where it rises a little bit higher. Um, a student who puts a cheat sheet together the night before, puts it in their pocket, walks with it to class, has it in their they could. They could have just said, I'm not going to take it out. Nobody would be the wiser. But then you chose to take it out. So we know what was going to happen there. Um, So those kind of rise to a higher level. I also engage with forgery um, as well of whether it's a medical document or forgery of an email to try to get out of taking um, an exam or getting an extension on an assignment. We've had that before. Forgery, you knew what you were doing. You know it's not your name that you're signing. So those kind of things rise to a higher level of it. Spontaneous cheating, the way that that actually happens is usually with Chegg, where a student is just sitting there and they're taking the exam and all of a sudden panic just sets in and they go, oh my God, I need to know the answer to this question and there's the internet, so let's go with it. So sometimes that does happen and I can kind of feel and tell if a student you know, did not plan that out. And you can kind of tell that when you speak with the student, you can. But of course, they still had to pay the, yes. the fee. So there were steps they had to take. To, it's not just like looking over the paper next to you. True, <laughs> true. The thing about pay and all that, um, those of us in academic integrity lands, um, we really have a very, I do, and I know many of my colleagues do, have a very visceral reaction to Chegg and to other websites who their sole mission is to convince students that their sites are safe and good and helpful and nothing could happen. Nothing could happen if you use us. That's not true. So what percentage of students have the most severe consequences? The the highest two that we have is dismissal and expulsion. It's rare. It's rare. It's not something that we want to see happen. We, you know, we don't sit around our office and go, well, we haven't had any expulsions this semester. What are we going to do? It's not something we want to do. We do believe in students having a second chance. We do believe that they can do better and know better. So we don't want that to happen. Has it? Yes. Very, very low percentage of dismissal and expulsion happens. It's usually more around the areas of probation, deferred suspension, or suspension that we have. 
I like the idea of second chances uh, because it mm-hmm. it seems like a, someone who's in 18, 19 mm-hmm. years old probably shouldn't have their life ruined because they did this one thing right. that was stupid. Mm-hmm. How do you work with a student though to if you say we're giving you another chance, we're not throwing you out. You know, you you did something really dumb. But then how do you work with them to try to get them to to make the right decision next time. That's where, um, when I do the coaching sessions, what I do at the very end of our coaching session, no matter how long it is, I work with the student in designing what we call an action plan. So based on our conversation is then where I'll go and say, I've got a really great YouTube video I want you to watch, or I have an online exercise that deals with values and uh, maybe reviewing our UCF creed having an understanding of better decision-making. So I give them actual things for them to watch and reflect upon. Sometimes I have a meeting with an academic advisor or meet with somebody on campus like that. So they have to do some kind of action with it as well. That's where I hope that through meeting with me, the action plan, and then they meet with me again after their action plan work is done, kind of hope that moving forward, they know better. I have great faith that they do because we have very low recidivism rates at our school. It is rare that I will see somebody again. That's what I was going to ask if you have data to show if the program's working. Yeah, we have very low recidivism from students who are found in violation of academic misconduct. Very low. And more following them, though. (laughs) That's part of the problem, that the new ones. Right, Uh, right. (laughs) You've been doing this work, as I mentioned, for about 12 years. What trends have you seen, not just at your school, but just Uh in talking to colleagues across the country that led you to address academic misconduct Mm -hmm. the the way that you have? I think the biggest trend that I that has held steady for me from the very first student I ever worked with to the one I worked with yesterday is that thought process of if I'm not perfect, if I'm not the best, if I don't get all A's, I will not be able to have the life that I think I'm going to have. And it's so interesting when you are maybe 30 years older than the students you're working with. And you're able to have that perspective where I'll say to them a lot, there is no way that you can predict at the age of 19 what you're going to be doing when you're 40. The one thing that I see common again and again is that thought, I have to get it done now. Now I have to be perfect, right? Now everything's got to fall into place. If not, then I'm going to lose something. So they're trying to not lose what they think their future is going to be. They're trying not to have anything interrupt the plan that they have in their mind. And again, you know, we have a lot of, there's a lot of chatter out there about high school GPAs, about SATs and ACT scores, and what does that really mean and all of it. So when they come to a university in their first semester, their first math test, at a college level, they get a 77 and they're like, it's over. So what am I going to have to do? I have to get a 90. So the way I can ensure to get a 90 is maybe put together a cheat sheet or maybe I'll use the internet 
like this. Those kind of things and the messaging that is just so strong for them is a big catalyst to why things go the way they do, unfortunately. I mean, I had a professor when I was in school come in the first day and say, by the way, I don't give A's. Well, that's nothing but a scare tactic. That's nothing but a scare tactic. Of course you give A's. You, it, it, there's no way that a department is going to say, no, no student is ever going to get an A out of this course. But when students hear that, then they're like, oh, my God, you know, and that's where the messages start to go. So we need to be careful. Well, that would put students off if they're really conscientious, mm -hmm. hardworking students. Mm -hmm. They might say, perhaps I'll drop this and take it another semester with right, someone else. Right. I, I, it just seems counterproductive to me. Exactly. You hold a lot of trainings for students and for faculty. Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk about the students. Do you find that they are relieved at all that the university is taking this issue to heart mm -hmm. and doing something about it? Relieved? I don't know about that word. I would say I think they are impressed. I think they are glad because I do know and have heard from students um, that have said it really really bothers me when I see a student with a cheat sheet and nothing is done about it. Or it really bothers me when somebody in my group will go ahead and text me and say, I know you already took the exam. What were some of the questions? You know, they don't want to be put in those positions either. So I think students are very pleased that with us, we have a, um, one of our values is integrity. We got to demonstrate it. And if people choose not to demonstrate it, there needs to be accountability for that. So I do know students are pleased when they see something happen, whether the professor removes a student or, you know, students know what's going down. So they, they, they get it when they see it. So I think they are pleased that it's being addressed. Um, they also, they're very, I will say, relieved that we're out there doing a lot of workshops to show them what are some of the traps that they could fall into that they were not even aware was a trap. Such as? Such as Chegg, such as mm -hmm. listening to those messages, such as right. um, thinking that there's no other option and that they were back in backed into a corner. I hear that phrase a lot. I was backed into a corner and I didn't have any other choice. And I'm like, you still did. You didn't have to do it. Are, are the workshops for students and for faculty mandatory? No, no, we do not have that. We do a lot of advertising around campus. We also have great campus partners that sometimes will use our workshops in a way of either getting scholarship points or attendance points or extra credits or something along those lines. So we have a lot of great campus partners that buy into what we're doing and we're so pleased. So we're used a lot in that way. I also get a lot of great workshop requests from faculty to go into their class. I actually have a thing on our website. We say, don't cancel class call us. So like if a professor has to go to a conference, don't cancel class. Let me come in and talk like that, you know, and I'll go in and facilitate something with the student and the faculty members not there. We can really have a good conversation as such. So we do those things. I also have great partnerships with our Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning. I could not do this work without them, and they allow a lot of workshop facilitations. I always present at their summer and winter conferences. I do some brown bags for them. They've been a wonderful, wonderful partner to get the word out. 
How different is it when you're speaking to a class of students without a professor in the room, let's say, versus when you are doing one-on-one? Oh, it's different because what I like to see is when I say certain sentences, I just love to watch the faces, you know? And like I uh, said earlier with the group of students, when I said, you do know that you can miss one question on an exam. I just saw eyes glaze over and I you know, would see people kind of rearing back going, she's crazy. And then I'll follow up by saying, I go, well, I just noticed that all of you are looking at me like I have four heads. I said, what's going on with that? What did I say that isn't true? I didn't say anything that wasn't true. You are allowed to miss. And I think it's when somebody like me breaks it down in front of them and they just hear that that is such a truthful statement, but they've never thought about it that way. Never thought about it that way. How many workshops do you do each year? Pre-COVID, goodness gracious, there was um, probably averaged 40 to 45 a semester easily. During COVID, it was a little bit more difficult. Obviously, we were still able to do some didn't have as high of a participation rate as we would like because obviously everybody's world was upended. Um, so we're starting now to try to get back into a routine of providing that across campus. But this semester, I think I've probably, I don't know, maybe I've done like six or seven, but everybody's just trying to get used to getting back to the way we were. I'm sure that people didn't want to do another online session yes. during the pandemic. <laughs> exactly. Probably. Exactly. <laughs> How big is your office, the, the Office of uh, you know, Student Conduct and Academic Integrity? It sounds like it can't be one person doing all this, is it? Well, um, <laughs> we have... Because you have, <laughs> you have what, like 61,000 undergrads at this school. Yeah, That's huge. Yeah. It's the second largest institution in the country, that is for sure. But it doesn't have to be just us because we have great faculty that have very strong syllabi that do take the time to speak of this in their classes. So I won't hear anything about any student in their class because they've really taken a great time to go over this. They know how to explain it to students, how to calm the noise down and as such. So I don't ever feel the pressure that I have to reach 70,000 students because if I did, I would need more therapy um, if I had to do that. So our office is a strong office. I think one of the things that has really helped is we have dedicated somebody myself to just academic integrity. We have 20 rules of conduct at UCF. I specialize in one of them. That's all I do is just the one. So I don't work with students who are coming in for alcohol or drugs or something else, you know, anything that's going on in the residential halls or anything like that. I don't handle any of those cases. I am specifically academic integrity. So that helps. I think that has been a great win, and I've been able to focus great partnerships in that and not having to go, oh, today I'm working with somebody who cheated on an exam, and then I'm working with somebody who had marijuana in the residential hall, and then I'm working with somebody with a fake ID and all of that. It's really been helpful to specialize in it. So that's what my role is. We do have three other great people that work in our office. We have two more hopefully coming aboard here. We have some openings, and so we have some people coming in, and then our great director as well. So 
It's not as large as a staff as I think we would all like, but what we have is great. What we have is effective, and we're really proud of the work we're doing. It does seem bigger than a lot of uh, what a lot of universities yeah. have. Yeah. Just just even having the mm-hmm. office of exactly. academic integrity seems, in, you know, maybe not unique, but mm-hmm. probably in the minority would be mm-hmm. my sense. Have you found that in talking to people? At yeah, other colleges? It's, it's interesting because either it is connected with the conduct office or it's handled within each department in whatever manner, way, way, shape, or form that they want to handle it. Um, so when I go to conferences, I will hear, like I, I met a wonderful person from Australia at a conference that I was at who is the um, kind of the academic integrity person of the College of Nursing. So that's all she specializes in is just the nursing um, program. So it's either handled within a department or program or usually connected to conduct. Yeah, you don't really want people cheating in a nursing program. That just, (laughs) (laughs) but I guess nothing is is you know off the table these days. Yes. How do have faculty responded to this program and Mm -hmm. the work that you're doing? I I kind of have a good feeling pretty well. Um, Where our reporting has increased. One of the things that again, just when I get the incident reports in. And I do the initial investigation of what kind of was sent forward. I always correspond back with the faculty member and say, we've received your incident report. I just need a couple of clarifications on what you wrote to make sure I am interpreting what you submitted is correct. I also give faculty the opportunity to say, I want to talk to you before I submit this incident report. I'm fine with that as well. Let's talk through some things. Um, So that way, I think we've really forged a great relationship in going, it's not just submit it and you're totally taken out of it. It's submit it and we want to work with you on this, okay, in moving it forward. I also have a very close relationship with graduate studies to handle graduate student concerns of academic misconduct as well. So it's really been forging the relationships is where I hope that they're going, okay, we want a partner here. And yes, this is something I need to do. I need to submit a report. What are their questions or concerns mm-hmm. about it? I understand that being an instructor myself. When I do ethical decision-making workshops, one of my favorite topics is to talk about how do you handle witnessing unethical behavior? How do you handle seeing something that you know is wrong and that this person is doing? How do you handle what you have seen, what's going to be your next step, if anything. And I don't judge either way on that. If you do, you do. If you don't, no judgment, because I'm not there and I don't know what's going on there. That's one of the things that I love to talk about is how do you handle witnessing something? A lot of the faculty want to go and make sure that we are a little bit in agreement, which we usually are, in the egregiousness of it. And they're like, you're not going to expel this student, are you? And I'm like, okay, let's let's talk about what expulsion really means. Please know we have six different levels. Oh, I didn't know you had six levels because a lot of people think it's a common vocabulary word of expulsion or expelling. There's usually not discussion. Nobody knows what deferred suspension means. 
like that. They don't even know it exists. So well, what is it? Deferred suspension for us is a step down from suspension, meaning the student can still complete their classes that they're enrolled in. But if anything should happen during the time of their deferred suspension, then suspension is on the table and student will probably be removed from campus there. So their questions are, you know, and again, I understand, but I also correct. Well, they'll say, I don't want to be the one to upend a student's life and career. And I always say back to them, I understand that you had nothing to do with it. This was a student's choice to do what they did. You could have been standing behind them in their residential hall over their shoulder and saying, don't do it. Don't do it. If the student wants to do it bad enough, they're going to do it. So you don't have anything to do with this. So they get very nervous about that. So one of the things that I work with them is, here's what our process is like. Here's what these coaching sessions are going to be like. Talk to me about your relationship you already have with the student. We can all work together on this, but I'm certainly will say I have stood my ground where I've needed to in saying, um, well, they'll say, you know, I know this looks pretty bad because, but can we make sure they're still going to be here? And I'm like, there's some things we can't unsee. We really can't unsee somebody on a video taking notes out from underneath their shirt and then trying to hide it and use it during a final exam. I can't unsee what I'm looking at. So you've seen that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You've, you've... yeah. Many times. <laughs> Many times. Someone on the score who, who I interviewed uh, said that <laughs> in one case, the father was crouched under the student's oh, desk. Goodness. <laughs> I don't actually know how the video picked it up. They Maybe they heard him whispering right. or something. Oh, I haven't had that. That one I haven't that... had. <laughs> But so, so what's the worst thing you've had just for fun? I don't like to say worse. What I like to say sometimes is it's the saddest one I've had because there was just, it was so not necessary. And we've had one case of a student who had another student go in and pretend to be them and take an exam for them. And the other one would be the student who paid another individual to complete their coursework for them. And you'll sit there and go, just when I think I have seen it all, something else will come up and I'll go, this is a new one. Okay, let's see how this plays out. That raises a question of, of why is addressing academic integrity so important? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there is that entire, you know, belief that you should be gaining knowledge right. and learning. Right. I agree with that. So if you're not doing that, mm-hmm. it invalidates mm-hmm. your degree to some sure. extent. Sure. It does. I what I'm pleased with that I try to take it to another step is students will say, and I understand, they'll say, you know, trust me, Miss Wright, I'm never going to do this again. I am never really concerned about them actually doing the exact same act again. What I say to them is, good, I'm glad to hear that. But what I want to address with you is there was a moment in time where something got the better of you. And it just happened to manifest itself into looking up an answer on the internet to finish a quiz. There's going to be other times where something is going to get the better of you whether that's in your career, in relationships, whatever it happens to be. But how are you going to handle 
the integrity piece. I kind of take the academic part out and then I focus on the integrity piece. How will you react if a supervisor comes to you and you were just hired right out of graduating from UCF and they say to you, we got a big report coming up. I know you're responsible for these numbers here in our report. Make them dance for me. Make it happen. We have to look really good to our stakeholders. Whatever you got to do, don't worry about it. I got your back. I'll take care of you. But please make those numbers look good for our meeting. Well, that's not right. So how are you going to handle that? So that's where I hope in just starting some awareness on these topics that students will, you know, not only take it when they're doing their academic work, but also take it for life. That's for sure. What makes it so important for you, to you really, to work in this area to, I, I know what you were just talking about is, is important, yeah. but where does that come from within you that you want to be doing this? Somewhere? It's, it's so strange. I, I always say I was very lucky early on in my life, um, like at 24, I believe, is when I really discovered that I was supposed to work on a college campus. I just knew that was my vehicle. I was, as an undergrad, I worked in our learning center where I went to school and I was a math tutor for many, many years there and became the tutor assistant uh, to the tutor coordinator. And I was getting a business degree, a marketing degree. I got out there and I graduated and I missed the collegiate atmosphere. I missed working with peers and I missed being the catalyst of a light bulb moment that a student now knew how to solve for X and Y. Um, I just missed that. And luckily, wonderful person who was the tutor coordinator um, where I went uh, sent me a package and it was the graduate catalog. And it said, you belong here. Come back. We'll help you. And I was like, well, I can't let that sign go unseen. Um, so I said, OK. And so I went back and I started work there and I went to graduate school for higher education administration and never looked back. My background is in tutoring and in learning skills and study skills and supplemental instruction. All of that is what I started with. And then I became the director of our great learning center at UCF. But being in an administrative role is not for Jennifer. Jennifer is an educator. <laughs> Jennifer does not handle payroll and personnel and budgets and all of that. That is not me. And I just said I needed something else. And there was another wonderful person at UCF who is now retired who took a chance on me and said, I already have seen you across campus. I know what you're capable of. We got something we need to have over here. Would you be willing to do a little bit of a startup? of all of this. And nothing is more satisfying than starting from the ground up on things. So that's really where it's come from for me. Also, I am just absolutely fascinated with human behavior. I am fascinated with what makes people tick. I'm fascinated to go, so you did that as opposed to this. You know, <laughs> and again, it's not a judgment. I just want to know where does it come from? for you. Yeah. So I am fascinated with what makes people who they are and all of it. So I, I do. I absolutely love my work. It's the most rewarding work I'll ever do. I am so thrilled that I'll probably be writing out the end of my career in this way. So thrilled to be, thrilled to be doing it. I want to know 
what is next? Mm-hmm. Are there plans to expand, take the mm-hmm. zero, mm-hmm. or maybe create required courses? Sure. Uh, the kind of like the sexual harassment training right. that's mandatory for college faculty. Right. What are your recommendations mm. to other universities? I will say what is next. I'm very excited about we have created a campus-wide committee to look at academic integrity. And I am so grateful to be working with these fellow faculty and administrators and for now not feeling like the only one addressing it. You know, people are addressing it, of course, every day, but being the focus of it. I need other people to help. I need other people to talk with and to figure out what can we do next and what is appropriate. So this campus-wide committee that has been formed, we're meeting here soon, and I'm very, very excited to see what is going to be our call, what is going to be uh, on our agenda, and what we're going to be able to accomplish through that. There's still a lot to do with making sure that violations are up to date with the trends that are happening especially with technology, as such to make sure that if something does occur, we do have accountability for it and not say, well, yeah, we see where the student went wrong there, but we can't hold them for anything, you know? So we're looking at those things or a couple of things that are next. I would say my greatest piece of advice is if you can designate a person, a team, a department, that just focuses on academic integrity, I think that is one of the best things you can do. Because then you're having people specialize in what is happening. You're having people day in and day out be around students that this has happened to and hear from faculty of what their frustrations are in this area. And that's what you specialize in. And then doing a lot of the preventive work is always helpful. And then you have a team specializing in prevention as such, that is the biggest thing that um, I would say to recommend to others is if you can really specialize it, I think that is good. That actually takes, to a large degree, the university or college prioritizing mm-hmm. this issue. Mm-hmm. At, at, at UCF, it seems like you do, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure that's the case all in many places. It's hard. It is not easy. There's a lot of competing things, and I understand that. I absolutely do understand competing things, especially when we're talking about mental health concerns of today. We're talking about, you know, increase of students with ideations um, of suicide and stuff. We're talking about students trying to acclimate. We have all of this incredibleness going on in this world. How are we focusing in on our wonderful international students and all of these things that are going on? So. I don't ever say academic integrity has got to be up here, but I I would just like it to be at the table (laughs) with a couple of other things. And UCF has been great about that. Well, Jennifer Wright, thank you so much for sharing these innovative work ideas and insights uh, on how to talk to students and faculty about academic integrity. Great. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And wonderful job with the work that you're doing with this podcast. It means a lot. Jennifer Wright is with the University of Central Florida, where she teaches ethics and leadership and is program manager of student conduct and academic integrity in the Office of Student Rights and Responsibilities. 
I'm Catherine Barron. You've been listening to The Score. The Score is produced by the Academic Integrity and Research Group at Pando Public Relations. It is underwritten by Measure Learning and technical support is provided by This Is Distorted. To ask questions, to download show notes, or to learn more about The Score, visit our website at podcastthescore.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at podcastthescore or find us on all the podcast platforms as The Score.